Well, uh, good morning, good afternoon, everybody. This is Brian Buford, and I am joined with my colleague. Mary Walter. There she is. And uh, really excited to have another uh, podcast, uh, kind of a real and open dialogue about teams and teamwork with yet another fabulous, talented leader that Mary and I have worked with for, gosh, on my end, at least 15 years. Um, so we're very excited about that. Again, the purpose of our podcast are to have um, inspiring and real conversations with real leaders about their lessons learned, about what they've done well, and advice they have for others that, uh, that want to be even better leaders of teams. And again, our focus is specifically on teams and teamwork and not just individual performance as a leader. So um, that's, uh, that's what we're about. So, Chris, why don't you um, tell us a little bit about yourself and do a little introduction, and then and then we can go from there. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Chris Holmwood. Go ahead and start. Well, good afternoon and good morning, and Mary and Brian. First of all, thank you very much. Uh, it's great to great to see you guys. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, a little bit I about um, started off uh, my background. Uh, went to the University of San Diego. I have a degree in English literature. I was then a Marine Corps officer for about six and a half years, was uh, an artillery officer, and then down at the Marine Corps Recruit Depot. Um, from there, got recruited into retail, uh, did some time in stores with Circuit City, um, then transitioned over to Target, and uh, had positions from store to district to, uh, to regional um, in operations, loss prevention and distribution, uh, then was recruited over to Ross, uh, Ross Dress for Less, where I had additional store operations roles and then um, ran operations for the company uh, for a short time. And most recently, I'm the president of Trimark Economy Restaurant Fixtures here in San Francisco and have had the, uh, the pleasure of working with both of you, as Brian alluded to, for a long time. So really happy to be here and great to see you guys. And Chris, we met, I think, in 2004 or five-ish. Uh, you were in not just one, but several different programs for high potential leaders at Target. Um, I think that was, uh, you were in assets protection before you made the transition to uh, distribution and then to stores. I'm not sure quite what the sequence was, but we've known each other a while and I've, I've got to be with you on your leadership journey and different different phases of your career and different roles. And so it's uh, so cool to see you here on the other side. Yeah, same here. I'm glad. To, I'm Glad that I didn't screw up anything that you taught me. <laughs> well, well I, I didn't say that, but we can get to that later. But no, I'm <laughs> kidding. Yeah. Uh, Mary, and how long have you known Chris? Gosh, forever, right, Chris? <laughs> yeah, Chris, yeah. you know, I'm just so thrilled to, to know Chris. And I think I uh, always have seen you as such a terrific leader and, and great values and really inspires the teams that you work with. And that's what I'm hoping we learn from you today. You know, Chris, I, I've always seen you as a continuous learner. And, and you've had so many interesting jobs from the Marine Corps to working in uh, a big discounter at Target and then to going to off-price in retail. Can you just tell us a little about what jobs really shaped you as a leader? Yeah, it, I, I mean, I think that they all have, right? They all take a little bit, um, they all teach you something, but I think it was the ones that continually push you out of your comfort zone and expose you to different types of teams. So obviously the Marine Corps has a different type of team and a different sort of leadership strategy. And so you learn how to lead a team there early on in your career and you think, I got it. Okay, I know how to lead teams now because I've done it here. Then you go into retail and you get you know, different um, tactics, different strategies, different metrics, um, and different people and different values. And so you learn something different there. And then you go to a, a multi-unit role where now you're not in the building where you can you know, go face to face with someone. You got to learn how to communicate and engage differently uh, from a distance. And so you, you pick up something there. And then as that starts to continues to roll, you know, leading a team of distribution professionals, which again is a completely different audience with different objectives and a, and a whole different diverse mix of people. Uh, then into loss prevention, you know, which is, uh, which has another whole dimension of, of who is typically in that, um, in those roles and in that business. And, and I think the, the best part of the part that the most fun is when you translate some of the things from one to the other. Mm. Uh, so it's humbling in the sense where, you know, every time you pick one up, you think, oh yeah, I got it. This is, okay, I got this team figured out. I got this team thing figured out. Then you 
you know, you get a shot of humble when you realize that, that they're different, um, especially as you're coming up. Uh, but then you start to you start to learn trends and you start to learn and, and start to template things and, and you start to have a team methodology uh, that you can apply with with learning. And that's that's what makes it really interesting and quite frankly, the funnest part of the job. I, your career uh, path has been so interesting and almost, you know, a recipe for developing, as you said, so many different skills in leading and influencing others, because it, you're right, every one of those groups is just completely different. And it really has been such a great journey that I'm sure you're going to have a lot to share with us about those various groups. How was the transition going from being in the Marine Corps to taking going into business? Was that a big one for you? Yeah, well, I got to grow my hair out a little bit, which was good. <laughs> um, in the in the Marines, we had these things that you would it was a like a rubber band that would hold the bottom of your shirt to the top of your socks, so that way your shirt always stayed in and your socks. <laughs> up. And I actually wore those as a new civilian for a while. That was mostly uncomfortable, but so you know, it took me a little time to unwind some of those things, but uh, the transition was good. Circuit City had a good program. Um, and they, they let me immerse and learn. But I think the biggest part of that was about how do you apply your leadership competencies and the fact that most folks in the military have learned how to lead and have been exposed to leading teams and leading diverse teams at a very young age, um, at a lot of different levels, in high pressure and high responsibility situations. And so my experience uh, w- was a little bit clunky at first because you're, you're trying to figure out what those pathways are. Um, but learning how to, and I think it's assimilating too around what you know versus what you need to learn. So I know how to lead. I know generally what people want. I know how to engage teams. I know to go talk to the troops and, and go try to be a good listener. And then you pick up the, the hard skills later. But that pathway is uncomfortable when you start now because you think you have to know it all. Uh, and you come from a position where you did know a lot or you were seen as an authority and a responsible person. Uh, so again, really humbling uh, in, in that transition. But I think just really acknowledging what you don't know, being honest, uh, and finding good mentors to help you really, really make a huge difference. You know, Chris, I remember there was a, a college student that once asked me, you know, what, what would you recommend in terms of you know, experiences or major or books or whatever to be a letter, better leader? just to learn general leadership skills because she, she was self-aware enough to know that there were some things that she was lacking. And I said, honestly, I'd go into the military. She didn't necessarily like that answer, but I said, I have seen more young people get broad, diverse experience in having to manage lots of different people. And you just, you can do that in the military in a way that you simply can't in other situations and contexts. Yeah, completely. And I think a great example is that, so as an officer, you come in, you have the rank, um, but you don't have the experience, which a lot of new leaders, you know, have. And when you go into new roles, that's not uncommon. One of the best pieces of advice I got was you take your platoon sergeant or take your first sergeant, take your senior enlisted representative to lunch, uh, which can be translated mm-hmm. in, go, go find the people that, that know a lot. And go sit down and tell them, you know, tell them that you don't know and that you want to you want to learn. Um, and that initial offering and that was Marine Corps 101. Like they, they taught us all that. And that, that's what I've done every place I've gone somewhere, uh, including, you know, as I progressed in different businesses, is you you go look for the people that have the most experience and simply eat for lunch. And you tell them, hey, what do I need to know? You know, how, how can I be useful? How can I be helpful? What do I uh, what are the sacred cows um, as you see them? What are the things you're concerned about? What are you concerned I might do? What are you concerned I might not do? But that, that bridge right out of the gates um, is, again, mm-hmm. very, very one-on-one. Um, and that's been yeah. incredibly useful. And it, it's, quite frankly, it's worked. Yeah. I really like the word you use, template. I mean, you had said that all of the different experiences have allowed you to kind of revise and upgrade and change your template. But that's a great template to start with at the beginning coming out of the military. Yeah. So looking, I'm curious, looking back, how do you think you've most changed as a leader? Um, and, and, you know, just in terms of one or two, maybe pretty significant changes in terms of what you do and how you lead. What would you say? Yeah. So I think I've gotten better looking and funnier. That's for sure. <laughs> you know, as you get bigger jobs, you inevitably get better yeah. looking and funnier. Um, so I, I think well, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with one of those, but I'm not going to tell you which. So. <laughs> um, I, I would say that, so one of the things that 
hasn't changed is that I still like to uh, talk to the truth. So one of the, my favorite parts, and I have been able to hold on to this throughout you know, years of leadership and transition and leading at different levels is if you want to know what's going on, you go talk to the retail sales floor. You go talk to the guys who are, who are loading boxes and trucks. Um, you go talk to the installers who are doing the work. That, that's a really huge, a huge part of, I think, what helps connect people to the mission, connects people to you. Um, and it allows you to, to really stay connected to the business. I think the thing that's changed the most is that I have become more demanding, I think, around the level of talent that I surround myself with. Uh, I've made mistakes where there were people uh, that were on the team that, that didn't belong on the team. And that's a very broad statement. Either they couldn't, um, they didn't want to, they didn't want to get on board with the change, maybe they didn't have the capacity, and it's not about about you know, releasing them from the organization. But I would say that uh, where I've had the most struggles or if I had to, to look back when I failed to do that well or in a timely manner, um, that's, where I, that's where I had bumps um, and where things didn't go at the pace that they needed to or where it got really hard for me and for the team. Um, and so I would say that I've gotten better and I think that's probably the most significant thing uh, that has changed about me is that when you I control most, regardless of how big your organization, the people that report directly to me are my front line. Those, I get to influence that. I get to pick that team. Um, and I become more and more uh, myopic about really being fanatical about getting great people. And then it falls apart as, it, as, the, as the circle starts to expand. That's terrific. And I, I love your, the impact on a team of having great people on the team. I mean, you know, we've seen it time and time again, where either somebody is a great uh, performer, but they're not a great team player and that can Mm. wreck a team. Or sometimes somebody's a nice person, they have good values, the team likes them, but they're not performing and that can wreck a team just as quickly. So I really, the impact uh, on the team itself and on a great team of having the right players there are so critical. Can you tell us a little bit about the best team that you've been on? You know, Brian, I spent a lot of time helping teams to get better. What's the best team that you've been on and why, why do you think it was so good? This is a really interesting question because every team has elements of greatness, I think. Um, the, the first one that pops into my mind uh, when I was the loss prevention director uh, for Target, uh, that was probably one of the best teams that I was, that I was on. Um, what made it great was that we had a, we had a great group of people. So. That's a very broad statement. We had senior leaders that had a ton of experience. We had a diverse team. So it was, you know, a diverse male, female, all sorts of, you know, ethnicities. So it was a great mix of personalities. The team was diverse in the sense that we had pure LP professionals, but then we also had operators on there. We were able to recruit some folks from the stores. So we had a diversity of perspective. Um, and there was really great chemistry, uh, which is that stuff, right? It's the essence that you can't. It's very difficult to explain, uh, you know, you know it when you see it kind of, uh, kind of logic. Um, and that team had really great chemistry. And I think what was most interesting was that watching how that team honed each other and how they really challenged each other. So it, it wasn't just a big hug fest. Um, there were some really great dialogue. And I think what, what emerged from that with all these diverse perspectives and, and a healthy respect for each other and the perspectives that everybody brought to the table in that organization was that we were able to really move some things forward that had been deemed, you know, impossible or can't be done. Um, and that, that's, that's when you look back and you go, man, that was a lot of fun. And we actually, we delivered a lot of great stuff too. Delivering results. I mean, there, there's nothing like being on a winning team. It feels so good. Yeah. If you had to, going back to the Marine Corps, describe in one or two sentences, your leadership template about, or your template about leadership and teamwork from the Marine Corps, what would it be? Well, what did you take away from that? So the, the basic tenant is mission first, Marines always. So again, a very pithy statement, right? But it, mission first implies that there's a job to do and we have to get it done. Results matter, performance matters. And you have to put that first and foremost. But then the back half of that with Marines always means that you never compromise 
people. You never compromise talent. You never put people in a place or position where they they can't be successful. You support the objective and the mission through the people that you're entrusted to lead. Um, and and the Marine Corps builds their entire structure around that from professional military education, uh, schools, uh, formalized mentoring. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of benefit to that. So when you think about it as a template, when you go into a workplace, it, it tends to get binary. Like people think, well, I, I want a great team or I want to have, well, do you want to have a great team or do you want to have great results? You know, because this person sells a lot, but they're a knucklehead, you know, well, no, I don't want that. I, you know, I want, I think that we should have a, let's get great results, let's get things done, but then we should have a great team too, because they feed each other. It, it builds a perpetual mm -hmm. cycle, I think. And that, that very simple, uh, you know, there's leadership competencies and leadership dimensions and more acronyms than, than I could even spell from the military as it relates to, to leadership. But that one has always resonated with me as such a powerful, simple statement around, yeah, you know, let's get things done, but take care of your people all the time. That is so powerful. I love it. Love it. That is. Yeah, really is. great. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. You know, Chris, you've uh, you've already been very helpful and vulnerable in sharing a, a opportunity you saw for yourself of uh, dealing quickly with folks that shouldn't be on the team. Any other misstep or mistake that you learned from in leading teams? Oh, how honest can how honest do I have to be? <laughs> it's just us. <laughs> Brian, do you have a couch in your office I can lay down on? That'd be that's probably be good. You know, I don't do that kind of business anymore, but uh, I know. Uh, I know. Um the I've always one of the one of the worst feelings that I think I've ever had is this fear of someone coming to me and saying, Why didn't you tell me that I can be better? Uh, so when you think about building a team, giving people hard feedback is really challenging. Um, mm -hmm. And you put yourself, I think, in a little place of doubt, right? Because you're saying, I'm going to tell this person they need to do better. Am I right? Do I actually do? Is this the right thing to do? Especially when you're when you're younger and or, you know, a less experienced leader and you're coming up. Um, and realizing that if I don't do that. someone could could not benefit from that feedback. Again, in a respectful, uh, professional commentary, always. Uh, yeah. But there's been you know, a, a couple of times where I did not engage someone effectively and came to realize later that if I would have given them the feedback on the spot where, hey, this is, this is what I think you can do better next time, or you know, hey, I saw you do this, this is not in line with our values. Um, here's some things. That I that I you know I see you doing or that I, this results that you're driving are 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 not in line with expectations and so what do we need to do to get better and those conversations are hard and uncomfortable and I I, I wouldn't say that I've engaged those a hundred percent a hundred percent of the time um, and that's a really awful feeling quite frankly you know when I look back at it where are there folks that I have been entrusted to lead that maybe could have benefited you know from that and they they might have been better or they might have stuck around a little bit longer. So that, that's a, a, real, a driver, um, again, to always in a respectful and, and purposeful and thoughtful way, but it, I don't ever want to have that feeling. It's a nice check for ourselves, too, to say, you know, by withholding this feedback, because I think that is a very human um, right. thing to do. And I, and I also think it's something that kind right. people do, right? Like, if you care about others, right. that's a very natural right. response. But I love the check that you've just given us, which is, you know, could this person come back to me and say, why didn't you tell me, you know, I could have adjusted. And, and I think that's a really nice check to help us move if we're stuck on giving some difficult feedback. Yeah. And it's about giving them the choice. You know, I, I'm yeah. not saying that they have to not have to, again, we're not talking about, um, you know, hardcore conduct issues, but if it's just about leadership counsel and it, it really is, I want yeah. to give them the choice, but they should be able to choose that. But if I don't communicate it, then they never get the choice. Chris, what do you look for to hire both good team players and outstanding performers? And in and, and that process, how do you balance the two? That's uh, so I, I was, I told myself that I wouldn't roll out a bunch of acronyms, but I do have one for this one. 
one. Oh, so goody. Like, you know, with, with, your, with your permission. Great. So, um, desire to lead, desire to learn, desire to listen. Uh, it, the three Ds and three L's. So the first of all is desire, right? If people want to, if they start their conversations with I want to or I will, that shows their own, in, their own desire. So you automatically have someone that's getting up and getting going on their own, which is awesome, right? The last, the last thing any of us want is to have to push. Nice to be able to pull or to guide. Um, desire to lead. People that want to lead always find a way to lead. They, they lead initiatives. They lead without title. Um, they're always looking for an opportunity to, to get out in front or to push the objective or to challenge the status quo. So that, and, and you can see that in campus recruits, quite frankly. You, you see that in military candidates. You see that in you know, all sorts of people across all different, uh, all different teams and, and organizations and across a wide array of, of ages, too, quite frankly. Um, Desire to uh, learn, so people that are continuous learners. Uh, and again, you can see this through a career path, you can see it in the conversation, but if someone, again, is hungry to learn, they're curious, and that curiosity breeds this self-fulfilling well of engagement and energy where they, they always are looking for something new, they're always looking for those answers, they never stop at the first answer. You know, this, this uh, desire to, to um, learn, demonstrates critical thinking, you know, where they're just always asking, they're never quite sure. So let me, let me ask one more question about this, or let me, let me ask a couple of whys. Um, and then the last one is the desire to listen. So listening to your customers, listening to your conscience, listening to uh, your troops or your teams, listening to your boss, listening to your mentors, uh, people that have a desire to listen, and they, they, they really want to hear what's happening. They tend to be Better observers. Um, they tend to ask more questions than provide direction. Uh, they're the people that, that you can see. And so th those combinations of things, just at a very high level, and again, you can assess it in a number of different ways uh, through their careers and their interactions. But I love those three because they, they, they form this balance, too, of, you know, one without the other, and you get out of whack. Um, if someone is just lead, 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 but they don't listen, well, that's not quite right. Or if they're, you know, uh, um, listen, 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 and they never learn, well, you know, then they, they kind of get a wallflower. Um, but I, I, I've always found that to be just a very nice, useful way in a broad assessment of talent. Uh, and it's, it works pretty good. It works pretty good. You meet some really interesting people. Terrific. You know, um, I know you've worked with some great leaders, and it, it's always good for our audience to kind of mark, mark uh, leaders to be inspired by and to learn from. Who's the best team leader that you've seen, Chris, and, and what made them excel in that role? This is, you're putting me on the spot here because there, there's, I've been fortunate enough to, to have seen some, some really mm -hmm. great ones. So that, I'll tell you the first one that pops into my head, his name was Sergeant Major Moses. Uh, and he was my uh, first Sergeant in the Marine Corps. That guy um, had an uncanny ability to know exactly where to be um, what to say, uh, how to get the very best out of people. And he could deliver good news, bad news. It didn't matter. The team and the, because this was down the depot, uh, and we were he and I were responsible for a company of drill instructors. So we're working with a super intense, um, high caliber professional group of guys. Um, and his ability, he would, he would mess with them. Um, he would, you know, he always just knew exactly what to do, but then he was also progressive in that we would, he would create fun days and fun things, which sounds really odd, right? When you think about a, a high intensity, uh, peacetime military, uh, organization, um, he had such a great way of balancing being connected with them and knowing what each one of them needed, uh, both on their, both in their personal lives, because that was a little bit of that you know in the military you have that um expectation to some degree but you have the ability to, to really understand people's personal lives with their professional lives but also with their professional goals so yeah. that combination of knowing all the essence of who they are and, and what their goals were and, and what they were good at and what they weren't good at you would build you know drill instructor teams and they had really great chemistry uh, because he really knew who the people were and he had an ability to be able to build that and that that company, that group, we delivered um, some of the best results that, that for that time period at the Marine Corps Recruit Depot with the high recruit rate, high academic scores, high physical fitness scores, 
um, low attrition, you know, so a really great mix of, of results again out of that. And the guy, he was from Tennessee. He had this thick backwoods accent. So, you know, just a really hilarious and fun and engaging person to be, to be around too. Boy, I'm just inspired really, listening to him. It just sounds like yeah. so attuned to people yeah. as individuals. Yeah, he was, he was amazing. He was amazing. Chris, how do you um, incorporate value into the uh, culture that you're building, you know, at uh, Trimark and your team? And, and, and I guess I'd be curious if you did any values work when you came into the organization. And I just want to talk about the link between values and culture in general. Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. Um, so again, I'll, I'll start. I think that this started with the Marine Corps again, where the Marine Corps had three values, honor, courage, commitment. Um, those were kind of the foundation of things. And one of the things that I've done here is really start there. Uh, there's a lot of work that has to be done. There's a lot of initiatives that have to get across the finish line. There's a lot of projects that have to be started. But um, what I started with was sharing my, my values. Um, so talent, uh, we win or lose on talent, uh, you know, a, a ceaseless demand for excellence. Uh, we build trust, we drive ownership, and we build commitment. Um, so a really simple uh, way of just articulating that. So I started with articulating those things and then finding ways to demonstrate uh, what that looks like in practice. Uh, and so some of it was conversation, and, and I held meetings with all the different organizations that I'm responsible for. And I shared it with every single person in the, in the organization in, in the first 30 days here. Uh, with the caveat that, you know, we might evolve these over time, but I wanted people to understand what mattered to me. So the first thing that people hear from you is your values, not what the, you know, not what the EBITDA is. And, and certainly those things are important, but I think it's really meaningful when, especially when you're new, when you take the time and the very first message you talk about is, hey, here's what matters to me. We win or lose on talent. So what does that look like? Um, you know, we have a ceaseless demand for excellence. And what does that actually mean? And it was really interesting to see the organization start to evolve pretty quickly around that because they weren't used to that. Um, they weren't used to having that sort of conversation around values and, and what that translates into. Uh, and we, we put them up, we put them on a sign, right? So we all agree to them. I already got behind them and then we put them and we put them up on the wall. And so we have our values posted uh, where they can be reinforced and remembered. And I, wouldn't, I would not say that we're, you know, we're deep yet, uh, but it starts with that. And I think reinforcing those through our behaviors, through our daily interactions, um, I think that's how it starts to get traction with people. Terrific. I, you know, I think teams respond so well to this deeper meaning. Why are we here? And that starts to answer that question for them. Yeah. And that, yeah. that was part of the Marines, obviously, too. I think I got that. From yeah. You're part of a history. As yeah. soon as you join the organization, you're part of a history that's, you know, over, over two centuries old. Um, and so finding ways to connect people to that larger piece, any opportunity, it matters. Awesome. Yeah. yeah I think you lead with those values and you start to get buying quickly toward the more practical and, and strategic things that you're trying to accomplish. I love it. You know, Chris, I've seen you lead. I've actually watched you lead turnaround and transformation okay. opportunities um, very successfully. Not everyone can do that. Uh, uh, one thing I'm curious about is, you know, I feel I find that teams that have been struggling I start to feel like losers. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they don't start to feel good. And that just becomes kind of this vicious downward cycle. Uh, that then impacts their results. Any thoughts about how you create engagement um, as you've led turnarounds or transformations with the team? Yeah, that's a, it's a really, it's funny you say that. Um, it, it, uh, it's not easy. Um, it's a really, it's a really hard thing to do because there's a lot of, there's a lot of priorities. Um, I think some of the things that have helped me uh, with that one is again, the not to harp on it, but to go back to the people side of assessing your talent quickly and identifying um, capabilities and limitations based on the people that you have. Uh, and then as you go deeper in that, and you alluded to this, Mary, about finding, finding some wins, uh, finding the quick wins. So I think where I've been most successful is when we've been able to eke out uh, you know, a basis point at a time. Um, uh, you know, one customer service at a point at a time of, of winning um, and then celebrating the daylights out of it. 
uh, it's, you know, recognition, reinforce, reinforcement and repeat of, of what those things look like. Uh, I mean, in, in different, in different instances, it, it looks different, differently, obviously, but it's so important to show people that they can. Um, and when you, when they do win, and I think where some people get off the rails on this is when they do squeeze out that win, they don't take time to reinforce why it happened, how it happened, and mm -hmm. that the leaders actually made it happen. And so it's the slow flywheel of leadership confidence that you have to build one, one basis point, like I said, one, one sizing score, one, you know, one clean truck uh, at a time. Uh, and, and again, not celebrating effort, but really celebrating the achievement and the fact that, no, that this is a real win and they made it happen. And how do you think it happened? And, what are you going to do tomorrow? And what do we need to learn tomorrow? Uh, and that, that perpetual cycle seems to, seems to, uh, it, it gets sticky. It gets sticky real fast. Uh, but it does require just a ton of, it's a ton of energy. You know, you really got to push hard. You really got to push hard. Yeah. I love that answer. And I, I, I couldn't agree with you more that that's a great strategy to, to create winners, you know, that in an organization where they haven't felt that way. And one thing I've found leaders sometimes will do is, you know, if you get a big organization, a turnaround, you're, you tend to be a person who has a very high standard. And so it's like, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to celebrate until we're, we've achieved that standard. And so yeah. we're going to wait till we get it. And the, and the reality is the people on the team are feeling generally so bad because yeah. it wouldn't be a turnaround if they hadn't been failing. Right. And so I think you're right. Finding those uh, small wins and making a big deal about them can really help to start that flywheel as you talked about. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And Chris, you had said that, you know, it's not recognized or not just calling attention to effort and, um, and that it is about the results. I once heard, and I don't know where I read this or who said it, but it's always stuck that, you have to recognize and call out um, results, but also progress and effort. Mm -hmm. Because if you just recognize results um, in a turnaround or in a business development or innovation uh, group that's building something new, and you know you're there, there's lagging indicators of success that you know they're they're the best and the brightest are often put on the toughest things that are two or three years away from being profitable and they're not going to get a bonus if you just uh, base it off of that. You also have to recognize and incent them different ways, but also just the progress and the effort that they make. Would you agree with that? You have to recognize all three, progress, effort, and results? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Brian. That, and inside that is the prioritization, right? And defining what success looks like. So yeah. you're right. If you're trying yeah. to go 100 yards, you know, and nobody, you're not going to get 100 yards in a day. Um, and, and you're right. You, Lose people yeah. along the way if the goal is set at even potentially where the company's standard is or where everybody knows that standard of excellence is. But if you're at ground zero, that standard of excellence may as well be Mars, you know, unless you're Elon Musk or something where it reaches <laughs> the rest of us. You know, that, that feels like forever. Mm -hmm. So, what you do is, um, especially in these turnaround situations where you can recognize achievement, is effort towards those milestone goals. So, all right, yesterday, Truck wasn't done. Great. We're, today we're going to get half of it done. Okay, great. Do we get half of it done? Yes. Tomorrow we're going to get three quarters of it done. Do we get it done? Yes. You know, and, and you break it off into bite-sized chunks. So it gives people something that they can control, something they can orient on. But then I also think it does reinforce the behavior and the standard that we're going to define the standard. And as long as that, those milestones and the recognition to the standard continues to evolve, then we're on that pathway, right? We're learning. We're getting better. We're defining what excellence looks like every day. And that, that I think, helps breed that culture when you do need to continue to raise the bar uh, where it doesn't feel like you're moving the target. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Totally. Um, what advice would you give leaders transitioning from the military to, to business or other settings? Um, I've seen a number of companies, pretty big, big companies, uh, at least in America, that are have unique programs and are doing all sorts of cool things to call out veterans and the skills and the capabilities they bring, which I think is awesome. What advice would you give them that are um, coming out and, and, and their path is ahead of them, not sure where they're going? Yeah, we're in the middle of one of the largest 
drawdowns in America's history um, post, you mm-hmm. know, the, the 9-11 uh, and the, the different wars and battles that went on. So there's this huge population that's entering the workforce. The, the advice that I would give them is to be open to things that aren't traditional paramilitary pathways or things that maybe aren't directly related to your military occupational specialty. So if you were a supply officer or um, maybe you were in accounting, you know, that, that might be a natural segue, but you've got a large percentage of people that were in aviation or that were in combat arms, infantry, artillery, uh, you know, into the Navy where they're on ships, um, the Air Force. I mean, there's all these different jobs that they have. And, and I think because the military does such a great job of training in a specific, uh, you know, skill set, that I, I don't think enough of these folks really understand the value proposition that they have coming into the, into the civilian workforce. And so they tend to be a little bit myopic on, well, I have to go to the FBI, I have to go, go to the CIA, or I have to go Police to... Police Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that, um, and I, I am guilty as charged about getting on my soapbox anytime I get in front of a, get the opportunity to speak to military leaders about this, because, you know, I, I've benefited personally and professionally from the experiences I had in the military. And, and I mean, my mom, I think finally, after the last couple of years, she's given up on asking me why I got into retail. <laughs> she, you know, she couldn't. You've an English degree and you were in the Marines and now you're, now you're in retail. So, you know, there, there probably is some explaining to do there, but just being open to exploring different businesses uh, and really looking at their collective skill set of leadership more than the experience. Because these are smart people that have done a lot and, and know a lot and they can learn pretty much anything. I think that's great advice, 30 or 40 years. I think one of the biggest changes in the work environment is, you know, there used to be clear paths and clear trajectory, yeah. right? That you, you did and you stayed at one company for 25 or 30 years. And um, now I, I think I read something that most people change not necessarily wholesale careers, but kind of significant, the type of work they do, there are seven to eight significant changes they make over the course of their career. Uh, and that they have to be open to new experiences, to different experiences, and kind of the, the formalized channels to get people from you know, high school out into the workforce um, uh, have been obliter- obliterated and will continue, to, I think, to, to erode. Yeah, and if you think about even how millennials are entering the workforce now, almost with that expectation, I think it's a really unique yeah. leadership challenge. Uh, you know, obviously with people from the military, where you're telling them to think like that, then you have this uh, tour de force or this you know tour de force of of these leaders coming out of colleges and campuses with an almost an expectation of, look, I want different experiences, I want to try new things, and so it really becomes yeah. a leadership challenge. I think I know for me in particular. Um, as a leader, how do I continue to think differently about the environments I'm building and the teams that we're creating that we're accepting, we're yeah. inviting, and we're engaging a full spectrum of different expectations? Yeah. One of the reasons I love the desire to lead, learn, and listen, um, especially the desire to learn, I mean, so important to be a continuous learner and ask for feedback but that if you have that need and that insatiable curiosity, you're going to be externally focused. You're not going to be head down, stuck in just your industry, just, you know, to understand merchandising or this. And that true learners, think it's, it's not just being open to, the, uh, to um, the, the opportunities and the experiences that are ahead of you, but be open to and tuned to how the external world is changing and what, what's going away and what, what's growing. Um, and, and learning, I mean, it's gosh, is there, there's just no, uh, it's so unfortunate, whether it's a board or a CEO or even, you know, brand new college recruit, if you're internally focused, which is easy to do at the, there's just, uh, it's not a good recipe for success long term. Yeah, totally agree. Totally. Agree. Yeah. You know, Chris, uh, in addition to being nimble as leaders in through our career, I think another thing that I'm finding is a need for sort of balance and enough of distance from work. And I, I almost feel like with a lot of leaders I'm talking to, I'm finding this epidemic almost of people feeling 
overwhelmed, burnt out, and or just lacking balance. You know, they just feel like their work has become their life. And I'm just curious, you know, you've always struck me as having a very rich life outside of work. And I think you do a nice job of keeping that balance. Can you share with us what what works, what doesn't work? How do you manage to keep kind of balance in your life that I think benefits you both personally and professionally? Yeah, this is a really tough one. So um, I threw my iPhone in the river. That's <laughs> that helps. Uh, then it was really easy. I can't believe how easy that was. God, why didn't I think about that a long time ago? I'm floating in San Francisco Bay somewhere right now. Um, no, th- this, this is a constantly evolving challenge. I know you guys face the same thing. Uh, it, it's and a very wise man who happens to be on this phone call. Uh, help me with this at one point where we talk about balance um, and and Brian gave me this little nugget some years ago about integration that balance implies this very binary trade-off right if it's either on or off as opposed to this integration of how do you integrate the things in your life that that can coexist Uh, and so what this isn't is doing email while you're at Friday night pizza with your with your family like that that's probably not integration but um, are there things you can do, uh, you know, with your commute or with different different elements of your life? But I think the there's a couple of things I think when I think about this. The first one, and this is going to sound like a plug, but it's true, is that if you build a good team, then you're a better delegator. When you're a better delegator, you get more time to yourself. When you get more time to yourself, you do a better job of doing the things that you really want to do, which could be things at work or things outside of work. Um, so that that team piece is really critical. And where I see people struggle the most is usually where it's, it's a skill set that they haven't developed um, or they don't have a strong enough team that they either have the confidence to delegate or, or to, to let them lead, um, you know, or, or, they, or it's a, um, a skill that they haven't even developed yet, right? So if you see it with inexperienced leaders or maybe leaders that are um, leading teams for the first time, so it's kind of a, a wide array. But it's a constant struggle. It's boundaries. Um, the fact that you do have, and you know, my, I've, I have no clocks uh, in my bedroom. You know, we don't have, so it's my phone and my wife uses her phone. And so the phone is not only my alarm clock, it's um, my TV, it's my, you know, my Fox News, CNN, whatever. It's all those things, right? So the, the temptation to pick it up and check your email, the temptation to, uh, you know, look at something that, that is work-related um, is always there. So I, I health, setting some healthy boundaries, I think, is really important. Um, and the, the last thing, too, I think about this is that remembering that you set the example for your team. Mm-hmm. Um, I had someone tell me, this was, I think it was at Target, um, when we, you know, the, as soon as cell phones or, you know, our, our accessibility to email and these other things became more mainstream, uh, and I was doing my thing, right? You're like, this is great. I can do email at 11 o'clock. I can do it at 5 o'clock. And someone on my team came to me, and they were freaking out because they were assuming that because I was sending emails at 11 o'clock that my expectation was that they were, they were responding to them. And so I was unintentionally creating this masked expectation of hysteria, you know, on the back end. Um, and so that, that, you know, that I always keep that in mind, too, that part of my own check and balance is what message am I sending my team? It's just not by my example, but by my literal, if I'm sending an email at nine o'clock, like, am I, is this really that important? And so, but it, it's a yeah. struggle. It's a constant. It's a great, I think that's a great filter. I hear it all the time. Yeah. I hear it from people yeah. up and down, you know, so, I, you know, my boss is sending emails at two o'clock. Yeah, and that means I have to respond. So, yeah, I agree. Super fantastic filter and it's funny because for years people I think would get feedback that they were working too much and they would feel like oh I'm fine and yeah. I came to start coaching yeah. meals like it's not it's actually not about you <laughs> if you want to work you know 90 hours a week it, it's not about that it's about the message to the team yeah. and what kind of impact that has so I really like that filter Chris thank you yeah yeah What is one boundary that you've made uh, just around this, you know, that as a result of maybe, you know, in your current role, that just a boundary around work and home home that that you've set that you you just try not to cross? The one that I, uh, the one that I really have tried to hold on to is family dinner time. 
Um, my daughter is 14. She's a freshman in high school. So it's critical time um, for, for me and her uh, and my wife too. But I also know that the next couple of years are going to go by so fast. So mm-hmm. whatever it is that I'm doing, instead of paying attention to her and listening to what the heck is going on in her life and her world, uh, it's, it's fleeting. It's fleeting. That, that is a very powerful uh, motivator for me that, you know, I, I work is important and, you know, we have important jobs to do. And there's certainly things that, that are that are critical mass on what needs to be done. But that family dinner time has been uh, sacred uh, around no, no phones, you know, no, nothing else, no distractions. Uh, and that at least in that moment, uh, you know, we're all we're all together analog. We're all mm-hmm. talking to each other. And that, cool. that's worked pretty good. That's worked pretty good. Fantastic. That's awesome. Um, all right. Well, let's uh, bring it on home here. I'm going to ask you this last set of questions pretty quickly. Okay. We, uh, we've pretty much done these same questions with all of the podcasts. Uh, and, uh, and we'll just kind of go from there, Chris. So uh, what's the best part of your job? The best part of my job is building culture. It's the most fun. It's the most rewarding. What is the most challenging part of your job? Alignment. It would be so easy if everybody just did what I said. (laughs) (laughs) But then then we probably, things would probably break. I don't need (laughs) But no, alignment through all those things we've talked about, like making sure that, that people feel like they're in, engaged in a line. That's really hard. What's one thing that you've accomplished in the past year professionally that you're really proud of? You look back and um, you just stands out as something that you're proud of. When I left my last role, <clears throat> excuse me, with Ross, my backfill was ready to go. Um, so even though I was awesome. moved to a new career, um, we'd invested in the development and we had someone ready to go to, to protect that business. What's the one thing that you're still working on? Well, not the one. What is one thing you're still working on uh, changing or improving or fixing to be a better leader? More quality time to strategy, uh, quiet time to think, to carve out that time because it's so important. Um, and that, that's a struggle. It's a struggle that is I, on some, at some point, it almost feels daily, but it, it's, it's, a, it's top of mind for me. How do I make sure that I'm in that spot? What's the best advice you've ever received? Best advice I ever received. I'm going to go, it was that take your, take your platoon sergeant to lunch. That was a pretty good, that was a pretty good piece of advice. Maybe some advice that was not really good and wasn't helpful. Uh, there's, um, I had someone tell me um, not to laugh so much. I had someone, I had gotten some advice too that I needed to put in more hours, which I, which I just don't agree with. Yeah, I don't, not sure that's the answer. What's your favorite thing to do away from work? On vacation or home on the weekends, but what's your favorite thing to re-energize? Yeah, anything outside. Um, we've uh, picked up backpacking uh, the last decade, so getting out into the uh, into the wide open spaces has really been amazing. Uh, my daughter and I did a couple of trips this year, so I'm getting her into it, which is incredible quality time uh, with her running. Uh, I ran my first marathon this year, maybe my last, but it was uh, <laughs> got, got done. Um, and then it's really anything, anything with the family, especially now with, uh, with kind of where we are with high school. I love that you said that, you know, as human beings, we were not built to look at email and Instagram and be on the video conferences and look through PowerPoint decks all day. We're just not built or wired for that. Absolutely. We're built to be outside. What advice would you give the new uh, University of San Diego graduate uh, back in 1993 named Christopher Homewood? Buy Apple, buy Amazon. That's the first <laughs> one. Um, and, and honestly, I think, uh, you know, I, I would tell this person to be patient. Um, but I would also tell them to listen harder. Like, it, and it's not so much a regret so much as it is, you know, we, it's, you get so caught up in, in wanting to go do and, and 
uh, you know, go be and, and push out, push out, push out. But there's an incredible value in just listening really hard to what people are saying and really paying attention to, to behaviors and body language and those things. And so that I would, I would tell, I would tell him to just, it's okay, you know, be cool have some patience. Not everything's going to happen in the time, time frame that you think it's going to happen. Um, and just be a, be a really, really great listener. Listen really hard to what's going on around you because you're going to learn a lot. Awesome. Well, I, uh, I, I have at least written down five or six nuggets <laughs> of, uh, of gems to take away from this. Thank you so much for uh, sharing and being open. Um, it's been awesome. Mary, what would you Yeah, ask? really appreciate it, Chris. Any last minute thoughts or uh, yeah. messages for our audience? Um, uh, thank you both, you know, for, for the opportunity. Um, and I think if, if there was anything, you know, leadership is, a, is not a static thing. Um, it's a constantly evolving uh, sort of exercise in, in discipline and learning. Um, it has some gut-wrenching moments. Um, I think if you do it right, uh, and, and I can't stress enough, like the, the having people, quite frankly, like you, Brian and Mary, um, in your leadership life uh, are really what's, what's helpful. And I think that's what really um, is necessary, quite frankly, as you go through, through your own personal leadership journeys is to have those waypoints, um, those check bases, those thought partners, and even sometimes just someone to pick up the phone and, and <laughs> tell them that you're miserable because it's, it's tough. Yeah. Really tough. And, and then, yeah. you know, get a dog because your dog loves you no matter what. That's <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's true. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you, Chris. I mean, obviously, Brian and I are really passionate about helping leaders to be successful and helping to accelerate teams in their work around being cohesive and collaborative. And um, we've really found that, that, you know, it's it would be unthinkable to have a professional athletic team without a coach yeah. but somehow we think that our business professional teams can can operate that way so i agree with you you know having a yeah. coach is always a great way to get there chris thank you so much for your time and your insight i found this incredibly helpful i know our listeners will too this is mary walter i'm here with uh, brian buford again we're the team gurus this is what we do we make teams better thank you for listening thank you very much thank you so much <laughs>